He's turned the engines off. Completely cold. It'll take 30 minutes to regenerate them. Ship's outer skin is beginning to heat, Captain. Orbit plot shows we have about eight minutes left. Scotty, I can't change the laws of physics. I've got to have 30 minutes. Bridge to all decks. It is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents. Every episode of Enterprise Incidents, we dive in to the original Star Trek series in the order that those episodes were produced. I'm your co-host, Scott Nance, and I'm joined by... Steve Boris. Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited about this episode. I cannot wait. This is a big one. We are going in production order, and that brings us to an episode that can be truly deemed as epic and essential Star Trek. A great episode in every way. That is The Naked Time. What a fantastic episode this is. And I got to ask you, Steve, do you remember, maybe not the very first time you saw The Naked Time, but what were the... What was the impression the Naked Time had on you as a, as a younger man? Of course, I have no memory of when I first saw it. I have always loved it. It's always one of, been one of my favorites, particularly as a guy who loved the image of Sulu with the sword. <laughs> is just one I love and because I was always obsessed with swords. I studied martial arts a long time. I took fencing like that. Just like just that image alone is so much fun and everything else that happens in the episode i it, it's 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 just a a seminal star trek moment but i got to tell you watching it this time for enterprise incidents i just had a much more profound reaction to this episode so i mm-hmm. can't wait to talk about it uh, i i agree i mean just like you had the the younger impression of uh, Sulu with the sword. My impression was uh, Lieutenant Kevin Thomas Riley singing "I'll Take You Home Again," Kathleen. <laughs> uh, but also one more time. time, please, not again. <laughs> you know, but even from a very young age, what always struck me about this episode, and this is bef- like way before I got into the the uh, the habit and and certainly the profession of of rev- reviewing movies and and noticing things like this but what always struck me about the naked time was well two things one is the shift in tones in this episode that yeah. when things when when the crew when the crew starts to get infected like when we see Sulu and Riley get infected you know at first it's kind of fun and playful and and then as the episode progresses and as as things literally and figuratively spiral out of control and Kirk loses control of the Enterprise and loses control of Spock and loses control of himself, the range, the range that you have in actors like especially William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, uh, that their performances in this episode are absolutely top-notch, and they both knocked it out of the park. Even George Takei absolutely knocked it out of the park. And while The Naked Time is the seventh episode to be filmed, if you include the original pilot, The Cage, it was actually the fourth episode to air on NBC on September 29th, 1966. But the episode was filmed between June 30th and July 11th, took a total of five and three quarter days to film. 
Wow, and it that's came fast. In, yeah, it was fast. Well, if you if you notice, this episode really is a bottle show, except for the beginning sure. teaser on the planet. It's all on board the Enterprise, and there's no like real villain, at least not a villain that we see. But because it was a bottle show, it came in at $174,269, which is actually $19,231 under the first season per episode budget of $193,500. So the episode was directed by Mark Daniels. It's what's amazing about Mark Daniels. This is the second episode of Star Trek that he directed, but he shot it back to back with the man trap. So he went right from the man trap into the naked time. And the writer of this episode is John D.F. Black, who was extensively rewritten by Gene Roddenberry. And we'll get into that because that was a big source of contention between the two writer producers. It was scored by Alexander Courage, who of course did the cage and where no man has gone before and also the Star Trek theme. This is the fourth score composed by Alexander Courage. And he would not record another episode of Star Trek again until the third season with the Enterprise incident. Yeah, he only came back to record two episodes in the third season, the first being the Enterprise incident, the other was Plato's Stepchildren, as a favor to Robert H. Justman, the associate producer. But the score was recorded on August 31st, 1966. The, the other problem that Roddenberry faced on the, the Naked Time is with the writer of this episode, John D.F. Black. So at that time, John Black was the associate producer and the executive story editor for the first 10 episodes of the original series. And, you know, John Black had worked with the writers that were coming in, like George Clayton Johnson and uh, definitely Richard Matheson. And he did not like the way that Roddenberry was rewriting these established and famous and prestigious science fiction authors. So what John Black also didn't like was when Roddenberry rewrote his screenplay for The Naked Time. And that put a big rift between the two of them. And eventually John Black would leave the series completely. But John D.F. Black did write and takes credit for this episode. He gets sole credit for the episode, which uh, you know, I have to say that John Black's contributions to Kirk's Space, The Final Frontier, that whole speech that opens up every episode of the original series and is hands down probably the Best narration to go along with the TV theme song ever. I mean, come on. Uh, He also wrote for TV episodes like The Untouchables, Mr. Novak, Room 222, Hawaii Five-O. And he also got writing credit for the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Naked Now. But uh, John D.F. Black uh, obviously was very responsible for the formation of Star Trek because he was – the story consultant for those formative episodes. I just always, I think, assumed that it was Roddenberry who wrote that opening. And, and you know, it's like, I was going like, well, is it his, you know, the Bosom Buddies opening? The You know, trying to figure out what narration at the beginning of a show is better. Eh, 
I'm with you. That's yeah, the best. Yeah, start space the final frontier. Come on. So the very first story outline that John Black turned in was on April 4th, 1966. He turned in his first draft teleplay on June 14th, 1966. And then Gene Roddenberry did his first rewrite on June 28th. And then his second rewrite, the final draft teleplay, was on July 1st, 1966. He did a couple of uh, additions after that, but but basically the second rewrite in which Roddenberry is not credited on was on July 1st, 1966. And there are some interesting differences between the earlier versions of this episode and what we do see on the screen and uh, or on TV. And you know we'll get into that when we when we really break it down. But when this episode did air on uh, September 29th, 1966, the day two days before that, two U.S. Marine jets mistakenly bomb a village in the mountains of South Vietnam, killing 28 Montagnard civilians and wounding 17 others, and they were basically. Uh, on the side of the United States. So it was almost like friendly fire. And then on September 29th, the day that Star Trek premiered, also debuting that same day, along with the naked time, was the Chevy Camara. <laughs> um, it's, it's so funny hearing all this information because in my mind, what's going on when this show aired is I'm coming home from fourth grade and I'm probably having a little snack. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. the idea that, for when it really aired is people after Star Trek, there was the news about Vietnam, you know, that's yeah. just, I just picture the contrast between the bright colors of Star Trek and the really scary reality of the building war in Vietnam. That's just crazy to think about. All, all the stuff that was happening while Star Trek was airing in its original run, you know, you obviously you have Vietnam, but you have the civil rights movement, you have the cold war, you have the counterculture. I mean, obviously you have the space race, you have Project Gemini and Project Apollo that were were going on. The the Apollo 1 fire happened in June and January of 1967 when Star Trek was in its first season and Apollo was still trying to make it to the moon before the end of the 60s, which was the deadline that that the late great John F. Kennedy president uh, gave them. But uh, this is still an episode, I think, especially rewatching it like I did just recently to prep for this episode of Enterprise Incidents. It is a, an epic episode. It is an episode that has not aid, uh, dated uh, in any way. It still holds up brilliantly, and I'm very excited to, do, to dive in, uh, starting with the, the beam down to the planet Psi 2000 in the teaser. Captain's Log, our position, orbiting Psi 2000, an ancient world now a frozen wasteland, about to rip apart in its death throes. Our mission? Pick up a scientific party below. Observe the disintegration of the planet. So Spock and another crew member who is Joe, and I don't remember his... Thank you. See, yeah. I, this is why it's good doing a, doing a podcast with Scott Mance, because I know <laughs> you know it. Um, and they're wearing these odd orange suits, which apparently were made out of shower curtains. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, by the way, the, like, like, I will say that, that after the teaser, the episode is brilliant and flawless and perfect. But the teaser, even though it's serious science fiction and it's uh, above and beyond anything that was going on with Lost in Space – Seeing them beam down in those those really cheap looking 
red shower curtains that are they're they're not they're not even like sealed off from no. the atmosphere you know as as we will see in a second to get the ball rolling on the the drama of the episode but it does look pretty pretty ridiculous it's silly but i love the first shot we see of that frozen person it's a beautiful set design well filmed and we find out that everyone's dead and someone has been strangled and the engineer is at engineering and frozen just seems like he doesn't care. And there's even a man taking a shower fully clothed and completely frozen. This is a, just a great mystery to open with. And, uh, our crew member comes back to that main area and he's got an itch and you're just watching going, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And he takes <laughs> off his glove and he reaches up and he scratches his nose. And then, and the whole time I'm going, you're an idiot. I am sure there's all sorts of Starfleet protocols that you don't do this. And he puts his bare hand on this frozen wall. And I think this effect still looks cool of the red liquid going up and touching his hand. All right. Let me ask you about that. Okay. Like I was always a little freaked out by the disease yes. going not just uh, sideways, but si- sideways and kind of upward. The disease seeks him out. Yes. It's not like it dripped on him. It just, it was, I, I almost sensed like an intelligence. intelligence. Yes. Some, some kind of life form that is feeding like, like the, like the energy force and, Day of the Dove, like it's feeding off of right. humanity. But mm. that's a whole other thing that we yeah. can get into. But thinking about it that way does sort of like make you see the rest of the episode differently. It's not just a disease episode, which, by the way, watching The Naked Time after this crazy year we had with the pandemic. It's true. Boy, did this episode resonate. And, and, and it was so much scarier and so much plausible because basically for the last year, the planet Earth was the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. That's what it felt like. And it spiraled out of control and it was a mess. He puts his glove back on, Spock comes back, and the first thing he says is, make sure we're certain we don't expose ourselves to anything. And it's just, that is a perfect setup. We understand exactly what the episode is about. And he, you know, Spock calls up to the ship, says everyone's dead. And he, the last line of the teaser is, All station personnel are dead. What caused it? Unknown, Captain. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. And then that dramatic music cue by Alice and the courage to really like solidify that this is going to be a good one. And here's what I wrote down in my notes at this moment. I wrote down fantastic best teaser so far. Yes, absolutely. Great teaser. I mean, even with the the silly looking red suits, the effect of it, the overall effect of it, again, because of the seeing the disease go across the screen like that, this is truly an alien presence that we are seeing here. Well, and we know that whatever happened to these people that are all dead is about to happen to our people. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's just really, really well set up. We come back in act one. And I like to, by the way, and this is a small point, but that the mission that they're on is actually really interesting, which is that they're there to monitor what happens when a planet breaks up. And it's, does it make a huge difference exactly what they're there for? Not necessarily, but it's more interesting that way. We beam up and then we do a decontamination, which I also think is cool. But when we see when they're in the transporter chamber and we see them do decontamination, that's the only time throughout, I think, any Star Trek series where we saw decontamination in the transporter. In that way. 
Yeah, I mean, in they, that way. Yeah. And the whole time we're going, not going to work. It's not going to work. Something's well, well, still going to be bad. I, I think that there's something to be said about, about a story mm-hmm. like this where their fate is sealed from the very beginning. Yes. And you see the effect of it play out throughout the rest of the episode. From, from the beginning, from, from the first teaser, the Enterprise is dying. And we end up in sickbay. And uh, by the way, I like the black t-shirts underneath the uniforms. I always, I think they look cool. And um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and McCoy says that, you know, Joe is fine. Spock, I love the line. Your pulse is 242. Your blood pressure is practically non-existent. Assuming you call that green stuff in your veins blood. The readings are perfectly normal for me, doctor. Thank you. And as for my anatomy being different from yours, I am delighted. I love the ribbing. You know, this is the ribbing that the fans would really embrace, you know, as a signature quality of the original series is that that playful ribbing between Spock and McCoy. But at that moment, we're looking and Joey Termolin is rubbing his hand across his shirt like he's got an itch that he can't scratch, that there's an irritation, a tingling sensation, and he doesn't know what it is. Uh, but as the scene plays out, you know, Kirk comes in and he's he's talking to Joey and and he senses an uneasiness in Tormoin in which he says, uh, Terrible, Captain. It was terrible. They were just sitting like they didn't care. Whatever was happening, they didn't care. Well, and it's clear that Kirk recognizes something. He knows this person and knows that he has some feeling about being out in space because there's this sort of... I keep wondering. You keep wondering if man was meant to be out here. The other thing I think is important, and it's just a very small screenwriting note, is in in the teaser, Joey handles everything fine. He's not terribly upset by what he's seen. Therefore, when we see him being really different, we have contrast, and that shows that something's happened to him. Whereas you could have done it where he is upset when he sees it, and then you would have less contrast and it's less strong. Well, when we get to uh, the briefing room, and I, I always love the scenes in the briefing room when you see everybody just like chiming in on their on their strengths. You know, all the department heads are there. And they're trying to ascertain, like, what could have gone wrong. I mean, clearly something did go wrong. Uh, the the environment being turned off like that was deliberate. The, the crewman uh, taking a shower fully clothed. And Spock points out that, you know, instruments are d- designed to register what they're designed to register. And space still contains infinite unknowns. But- I think that's, a, by the way, I think that's a profound thought. I think that's a really smart light line instruments measure only what they are designed to measure that's really interesting i think just think that's smart they don't know exactly what went wrong they're going to figure it out or they're going to try to but they still have a mission to perform and that is to observe the disintegration of the planet but because the enterprise is locked in a set orbit around the planet as the planet begins to disintegrate the enterprise begins to spiral down to it so they need to stay on top of the helm and on top of navigation on top of engineering if they call for power then they're going to they're going to need it as fast as possible one thing that scotty says that i love he says Unless you people on the bridge start taking showers with your clothes on, my engines can pull us out of anything. Again, my engines is good writing. And he's taking ownership of his engines. Exactly. Which is why he 
is the miracle worker. So then we go to the rec room, and this is where we see a very big piece of drama involving Joey, because now we see that the disease is starting to take a bigger effect on Joey. He can sense that something is wrong with his hands. He he can't wipe off whatever it is. The tingling sensation is starting to really bother him and get to him. But then Sulu and Riley walk in and they're talking about fencing. And I loved the chemistry between George Takei and Bruce Hyde, who plays Riley. A couple of small things. Um, one is the the line, the first line about fencing. Uh, Sulu says, "Foil, it's a rapier, a thin sword." A foil is not a rapier. That's another two different kinds of swords. <laughs> um, um, wow. But the other thing I like is that he says, "All right, so what do you do with it? What do you mean? What do you do with it? Self defense, mayhem, shish kebab, you know, practice." And Bruce Hyde as Riley, I thought was terrific. And a lot of people know Bruce Hyde from this episode, but he also did return in a few episodes for The Conscience of the King. Right. And it was only in two episodes, but Riley was a was a great character. And when I was doing some research on this episode, uh, John D.F. Black had said that at some point during the development of the series, there was talk about making Joey Tormolin and Kevin Thomas Riley regular crew members. But of course- mm. It did not work out for Joey, and uh, Bruce Hyde did not stay on after Conscience of the King as Riley, but he'd certainly made his mark in this episode. And again, Bruce Hyde, excellent range in this episode. Excellent. Last week, it was botany he was trying to get me interested in. Well, last week was the man trap where we saw him doing botany. Um, and and the thing that I, because again, because I'm watching these episodes in a different way, I never realized just how much Sulu there is in the early episodes. Mm. There's a lot of them and he's great. George Takei, I mean, all of the supporting cast is great, but I'm sad that there is less and less of him later on, you know? Well, why, oh, listen, part of the reason for that is during the second season, obviously, you know, he had some company with Walter Koenig as Chekhov, yeah. but also George Takei left for quite a few episodes to go off and film The Green Berets with John Wayne. Oh, you know, you, you right. can't say no to John Wayne, even though that movie is not very good and has not aged well. Personally, I've never said no to John Wayne. Uh, but I agree with you that the first season for George Takei, especially the first half of the first season, he really has a lot, a lot to shine on. And the interesting thing, like, you know, so Sula was talking about fencing. We see him in action, in action fencing. And when the 2009 movie came out, there is a scene between Chris Pine as Kirk and John Cho as Sulu, where he says something like, what kind of fighting you went to? And he says, fencing. It was such a right. subtle nod to the original series, a subtle nod to the naked time. And if you were a fan of Star Trek, when it got to that moment in that movie, you smiled because you knew exactly what they That's were doing. That's the kind of fan service that works as opposed yes. to other things <laughs> that don't work. Um, and, and, and Sulu and Riley try to engage Joey in a conversation and he immediately, the energy is weird. He's angry. I love this line. He says, get off me. You don't rank me and you don't have pointed ears. So just get off my neck. And they're just like, what's what's with him? And he right. slams down the, the, the food canister and he's and that's when stuff hits the fan here. You sure you're uh, all right now, Joe? We've got to leave. We're all a bunch of hypocrites. Stick our noses into something that we've got no business. 
What are we doing out here anyway? Take it easy, Joe. He grabs a knife. And now we hear this this idea that he's been struggling with that we heard sort of the beginnings of in sickbay, which is we don't belong here. If a man was supposed to fly, he'd have wings. If he was supposed to be out in space, he wouldn't need air to breathe. Wouldn't need life support systems to keep him from freezing to death. And then it turns to six people died. Why do I deserve to live? And the knife that was pointing at Sulu and Riley, he turns towards himself. And in a really nice bit of directing, Riley grabs his hand. And of course, the, a smart director does a close-up of the hand because that we, we learn that that is how you transmit this disease. And Sulu grabs him and he also goes skin to skin. And we get that in a close-up and, and they wrestle and Joey goes down and that knife goes in him and we call for an emergency. And that is the end of act one. Well, first of all, it must be pointed out that Joey Tamale killed himself with a butter knife. Yeah. But uh, I guess if you fall on something even that blunt, it's yeah. going to go through you. And the, the look of panic on his face, when you see Stuart Moss, the actor who played Tormolin, the, the look on his face, he's looking at Sulu and Riley and looking down at his, at his torso and looking at the blood stains on his, on his blue uniform shirt. And the way Riley slams his fist into the intercom. Emergency, rec room area three nine, we need medics. The way that Riley is looking at his hand and trying to uh, get rid of the tingling sensation that he now has. The dramatic music cue by Alison to Courage. It is such a powerful end to the first act. Well, and the thing we should point out too is that every time someone touches their hands, there's a sound effect that's something like kind of rattlesnakey, like mm. it's a sort of shaking sort of sound. It, it makes this infection, whatever it is, feel visceral. And it, what you said at the very beginning, I think is so smart, which is that there's this weird mix of fun things and really scary things. And this is being set up so perfectly. And the fact that we've set up that we need everybody on point because this planet is collapsing and we had, it's going to be really difficult. That fact that that is happening at the same time that this infection, whatever it is, is happening is so great because that's what we get when we come back at, in act two is that the planet is collapsing. It's happening more rapidly than we expected it. And this is, Really interesting science, but we all have to be ready. And of course, we, the viewer, know that the helmsman and the navigator are already compromised. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, talking about the shift in tones for the first act, the naked time feels like a, a, a formulaic conventional episode of Star Trek. And I mean, that in the highest regard, by the way. But so now when we get into the second act, we're going to see the tone shift into a scenario that's, I would say, despite the severity of the circumstances, a circumstance that feels a lot more fun and playful and silly. You know, we're not quite wrapping our heads around the fact that the Enterprise is doomed, but we do see that Riley, who we already know was infected because of the end of the first act, you know, he's sort of uh, wiping his hands on his pants, trying to get rid of the sensation, that tingling sensation with that rattlesnakey kind of sound. But then you see Sulu rubbing his fingers together. So you have your navigator and your helmsman, the two people driving the Enterprise, when they are in a tight orbit that they, they need to act fast if they need to. And these two guys are both infected. 
And and there's also a conversation with Spock and Kirk, who are concerned, of course, about Joey and that his behavior doesn't match up with the person that they knew. And then we cut to sickbay and we're operating. And by the way, we have Nurse Chapel. Uh, we should say this is her first, this is num- number one, apparently got some kind of, she went back <laughs> to school and studied to be a nurse. She, I don't know how this quite happened, but it, but here is Majel Barrett as Nurse Chapel. His breathing rate is dropping, doctor. And she uh, dyed her hair blonde in the process too. So yeah, her first appearance as nurse, uh, what a name, Christine Chapel is like, could you get any more <laughs> angelic than Christine Chapel? But uh, I have to say, I always thought that her performances as Chapel were were underrated and underappreciated. And I feel like Major Barrett just really another actor gave a gave a superb performance, showing a lot of range in this episode. So so while she and McCoy are operating on Joey. You see, uh, I call him Joey because it's easier to call him Joey than Tomoan. Yeah, we're buddies. Uh, but on the bridge, they're in a tricky orbit. The uh, the Enterprise is yanked by the shifting formation of the planet as it begins to, to disintegrate. It sort of takes a hold. And Kirk's orders compensate for the change in the orbit. And Riley doesn't act fast enough, almost pulls a Bailey. Compensate. So Kirk is irritated. And he pushes the button himself. Orbit steady now, sir. Maybe a little nervous, I guess. Here's the thing about about the naked time. For the first two acts of this movie, of this episode, feels like a movie. Um, the planet feels alive. And thinking about how there was something something alive about the disease, now the planet feels alive in the way that it is it is grabbing the enterprise. That it, the the ship has to has to be on its game to maintain its distance. And it's almost like it's it wants to pull the Enterprise down. And the scene on the bridge at that moment, when Sulu says, Like the planet reached out and yanked at us. It's a little chilling that there's so much drama already going on, even though they are still very, very much in control. And that's what I what I like about this act is that even though clearly the disease is starting to spread, they are still very much in control. If they need the power, they can get to it. But when they go back to sickbay, and no matter what McCoy and Chapel are doing, the readings on the medical scanner keep dropping. You sure the respirator is functioning properly? Yes, doctor. Why is this man dying? And then they stop completely. And McCoy's just like, I don't get it. The wounds just weren't that severe. There are all sorts of little details I like. One of them being that the mask, the respirator is attached to nothing. And this is the thing is like, you're going, okay, we want to make things recognizable, but different to show the advances in technology. They're, they're, they're all really great. And we go back up to the bridge and McCoy has called to Kirk, wants him to come to sickbay, you know, and he'll come, he says he'll come later because the planet is decreasing in size and the gravity is changing and there's a lot of stuff going on. And finally, Kirk does leave the bridge to go to sickbay and Sulu turns to Riley and says, Hey, why don't you come down to the gym with me? Give him a lad. Now? Why not? Light workout will take the edge off. So everyone's at their station, and because of the way the bridge is situated, everybody's sitting with their backs towards navigations and helm. So Sulu was able to sort of sneak off the bridge 
without even Spock noticing that he's gone. Riley just kind of goes back to his uh, his post, doesn't say anything, acts like nothing is different here. But then when we're in sickbay and, you know, Kirk and McCoy are just flabbergasted that this guy died. One of the things I like and we've talked about before is it's not that these guys don't like each other. They all do like each other, but they also all push each other. And so there's the moment where first McCoy is saying to Kirk. The reason he died, Jim, is he didn't want to live. Gave up. And Kirk snaps back. That's a supposition, not a fact. And and then there's this other moment where, as Kirk is talking about, you know, it's not a coincidence. He was down on the planet. This must be the same thing. And Bones says, Jim, he was decontaminated. He's been medically checked. We've run every test we know for everything. That's we not know. good enough. And again, Kirk pushes back. Well, we're doing everything as possible. Bones, I want the impossible checked out, too. When we are back on the bridge, once again... There's a shift in the planet, and the Enterprise is is off its uh, off its orbit again, and the alert starts signaling. And now Spock turns around and he notices. Why isn't Mister Sulu at the station? Magnetic full compensated for, sir. Orbit steady. And Riley is, you know, like a guilty little schoolboy, sort of crouched down, trying to like play dumb. You haven't answered my question. Where is Mister Sulu? At that point, right there. That's where it happens. That's where it happens. (laughs) The disease takes over and Riley just embracing his Irish heritage. Have no fear, O'Reilly's here. And one Irishman is worth 10,000. You relieved, Mr. Riley. Lieutenant Uhura, take over the station. Yes, sir. One of the things I love about the Enterprise is that it's obvious that a whole bunch of different people have been trained to do a whole bunch of different jobs. So first of all, when Spock sees Sulu's there, he goes to the to the helm and take. And then when he's getting rid of Riley, he calls Uhura to take over. And I love the fact, again, what other show in the mid 60s had a woman who could take over I mean, literally yesterday, there was a controversy about disrespecting women in the military. And this is a situation where there's no question Uhura is totally qualified to fly the Enterprise. That's not what her job is, but she is qualified. And I love Riley's reaction. Now, that's what I like. Let the women work, too. Universal suffering. Report the sick day, Mr. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we would see Uhura take over navigations again uh, in uh, a couple episodes with uh, the Bounce of Terror. So, so yeah, she can handle communications is fine, but she can also drive the Enterprise, which is also also pretty cool. But the, the when when we get to Riley making his way towards sick day. And he's acting like he's drunk, which is a big effect of this new disease. And he walks in to sickbay and he sees Chapel sitting there and he, she looks up and sees him and he goes, Where's Joe? Well, he died, didn't he? Yes. You know something? Riley touches Chapel's chin. You have such lovely eyes. You hear the sound effect? And... She grabs his hand and he leans into her and says, You know what Joe's mistake was? He wasn't born an Irishman. Winks at her, walks out playfully, and now Chapel has the disease. She's rubbing rubbing her hands together and now it's on both of her hands. Between this scene with Riley and Chapel, and now the next scene that we see 
with Sulu, his shirt off, fencing through the lower decks of the Enterprise. So this act, act two of The Naked Time, it's, it's, it's more playful. I mean, yeah, there's a disease going on. And yeah, the Enterprise is in a really tight orbit. But the effect on the crew at this point, other than Tormoen killing himself, really, is like one of like playfulness. The vibe, yeah. the tone of this episode is like a playful, fun vibe. Now, originally, so there's two things. Uh, it was when the, the, the producers and the cast, they were getting ready. It was a behind the scenes moment. And director Mark Daniels saw George Takei without his shirt on, and he's obviously very fit. So Mark Daniels said, okay, you are, you are going to stay shirtless for this scene. So the other thing is that as it was originally written, Sulu was going to brandish a samurai sword, which is so cliché. You know, that, oh, because he's Asian, he's going to have a samurai sword. So it was actually George Takei's idea. No, it should be, he should be into fencing, like like Errol Flynn. It should be like one of his heroes that he took up fencing. So John Black, who wrote the episode, said, okay, fine, you know, you're a fencer. So, but it was George Takei's idea to turn Sulu from brandishing a samurai sword into fencing. What I love about that is that, the choice is to say that it doesn't matter that this guy is Japanese. He can, in the 23rd century, he can love whatever he loves. He's, we're not limited by these cultural things. And even though it's a small choice, I think it is a fantastic choice. Also, by the way, he looks great. He looks great. He did great. a bunch of push-ups. He did a lot of push-ups. He did a lot of push-ups, but he's also so committed. I mean, look. When George Takei uh, lists The Naked Time as his favorite episode, it's very, very easy to see why. Uh, it was such a great role for him, showing so much range between being the, the very loyal, uh, uh, dedicated navigator, uh, helmsman rather. And then, you know, he goes off and just like gets to go to 11 as a, as a fencer out of the Earl Flynn days. Stand. No father. Him climbing the ladder and laughing at the end of the sequences just makes me smile. Cowards! And the, the score, Alice in the Courage, really plays to the moment, just like he played to the previous moment with Riley with a more Irish-themed score. And now he's playing into the, uh, the swashbuckling moment with Sulu. He just was a great, great composer. We, we go back to the bridge, and we're discussing now the symptoms. And this doesn't seem like it's that serious yet. What were those symptoms? Not violent at this stage. Slightly disoriented. Riley seemed rather pleased with himself, as if he were... Irrational or drugged. Precisely. It's hidden personality traits that are coming out. Riley, who fancies himself a descendant of Irish kings. Joe's depression, you know, his worry about being out in space. And now Sulu, who is at heart a swashbuckler out of your 18th century. And at that that moment... At that moment, a big jolt hits the Enterprise, and this is really where the Enterprise, it's, it's, the, it's the point of no return, because no, no amount of compensation can stop the Enterprise from spiraling down, because when Kirk reaches down to engineering, Scotty isn't even in the room. So he tells Spock to take over. He's heading to the turbo lift, and there is Sulu with the sword pointing at him. He says, Mr. Liu, at last. 
I love that Kirk tries to say, put it down, and he touches the point of the sword, and he's like, oh, that's sharp. Should have put that, put that thing away. Yeah, you know, it's like, put that, that thing away. Queen. <laughs> And, and this moment is great. He thrusts at Kirk, who jumps over the railing. Spock comes up on the other side. Sulu is swinging that sword around, which is not how you use that kind of sword at all. It's entirely wrong, but it doesn't matter because it's awesome. And then Hora tries to get in. Sulu. And he grabs her because he's going to protect her. I'll protect you, fair lady. And I love Uhura's line. Sorry, neither. Sorry, neither. And really, it's Uhura who makes this work because it's her pushing away from Sulu that gives Kirk the chance to grab him and Spock the opportunity to do the Vulcan nerve pinch. And by the way, Sulu does a great fall. It's a really good bent backwards sort of fall. And he, and then we get Spock makes a joke. It's so, it's so funny. Like, it's like one of the keys to Spock is that he's funny. I'd like you to teach me that sometime. Take D'Artagnan here to sick bit. Now, now it must be pointed out, Steve, it must be pointed out that because the episodes were not shown in production order, this was the fourth episode to make air. So it aired before the enemy within. So for people watching Star Trek back in 1966, this was the first time people saw the famous Vulcan neck pinch. And it was during the making of the enemy within, which was shot a couple episodes before where Spock came up with the idea for the famous Vulcan neck pinch. But this was the first time the people watching Star Trek actually saw it. And yes, I do love the line, take D'Artagnan here to sick bay. You know, Spock is still in his sort of like wise ass phase from the first uh, first few episodes. Now, like I said, you know, this, this act, while full of action and drama, it is still playful. It is like the whole scene with Sulu on the bridge of the Enterprise, it's funny, you know, it's humorous. Yeah. It's totally. it's levity, and it's, it is masking the fact that we are actually in very very serious trouble. And well, that- what, what what they're doing so well is that they're ramping up the tension of the plot. So if the, you know the the plot of the ship is in trouble because it's getting pulled into this planet, and we have to act quickly. And even though these things that are happening are amusing, the situation isn't. Like we get the sense of oh, no, this is just going to get worse and worse. It's a great setup. Scotty, we need power. Engine room, acknowledge. You rang, sir? And it's Captain Kevin Thomas Riley. He's locked himself in engineering, and then he starts to sing the song that has come to define this episode, Kathleen, I'll take you home again, Kathleen. (laughs) He does a perfectly just off key rendition of that song. He's near the melody. Captain, in our present rate of descent, we have less than 20 minutes before we enter planet atmosphere. And burn up, I know, Mr. Spock. And Spock kind of like is hearing, you know, Riley singing (laughs) Kathleen. He just kind of like shakes his head. So that brings us to the end of the second act. And act three starts with Kirk running to the halls to engineering, where we see we are locked out. Riley's still singing. The roses all have left your cheeks. This, by the way, I think this episode gives us another good look at engineering. We saw it a little bit in Enemy Within. This is getting to see it again. And Ahura cuts off Riley's song, and he says, I'm sorry, but there'll be no ice cream for you tonight. Cut him off. 
I can't, sir. There's no way to do it. And then there's another big jolt that sends all the people on the bridge of the Enterprise flying across the set, you know, a scene that would be mimicked and made fun of for the next 55 years. I think this is the biggest Enterprise shake we've seen so far. It is It is definitely the biggest Enterprise shake we've seen, it's certainly in this episode and in the series so far. And it is also a scene in which we just see that it's getting worse. Things are spiraling further out of control, not just for the Enterprise, but for everyone on board. So there's a scene where Scotty is in the Jeffries tube. First of all, this is the first time we've seen the Jeffries tube. And it's named after Matt Jeffries, who designed the Enterprise. And while Scotty's putting the devices in place, you hear in the background the faint echo of Riley singing Kathleen. And it's not funny anymore. It sounds haunting. It sounds ominous. One of the things that I think this show does that I've rarely seen done is take something silly and make it scary. Mm-hmm. So you have Riley and he's talking about how women should wear their hair and they shouldn't wear makeup. And it's all just ridiculous. And the longer it goes on and the particular, the longer he sings that song, the scarier what's happening becomes because you realize that this drunk idiot is going to kill us all. Now Scotty has to get into engineering. So he's already sort of mapped out where he needs to cut through the bulkhead to get to the device to unlock the door really Now, in the original episode, for decades, we see Scotty holding a phaser and we see the bulkhead being cut through. But what we don't see is a phaser beam, nor do we hear a phaser Mm. sound effect. And they they just ran out of time. So when they went back for the remastered versions of Star Trek that started airing in 2006 and came out on Blu-ray in 2007, Mike Okuda and Denise Okuda who were sort of spearheading the redone special effects, Michael Kuda was able to go back and reinsert Scotty's phaser beam that had been missing from the episode for all those decades. So that's one way that I thought it was cool. You know what's funny is I now that you say that, because of course I watched the enhanced version, now I totally remember seeing there being no phaser beam and having that. Oh, that's weird. I also think it's weird, by the way, the thing he's cutting looks very much like the state of Texas. <laughs> yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah, the uh, the image, the uh, uh, schematic of the of the bulkhead. So Spock is now down in the lower decks, and he comes across a crewman who <laughs> is laughing hysterically with a paintbrush in his hand. Roman report to the lab. And he walks by a part of the bulkhead that says, love mankind. And then he sees a crewman hitting on Yeoman Rand. And he says, crewman stand aside. And he says, yes, sir. And as soon as he walks away, he starts hitting on Yeoman Rand. He's singing Kathleen. And (laughs) again, playful, still playful. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little bit silly and we're right at the place where things are going to turn. The first one being is he comes to Scotty who's cutting through the thing and he's like you got to you got to do Hurry this up. faster. Yeah. And Scotty goes, "Look, if we were under attack, I couldn't go faster without a safety factor." And Spock says, "At the rate you're proceeding, calculations show that you'll take a minute and a half more than we have left. You can't afford a safety factor." And we're back on the bridge and we see the crew members on the bridge becoming 
more affected. Right. And Kirk is running around the bridge trying to keep everything in order, trying to snap people out of it to do their job. And he's like running around trying to do everything himself. And he's sitting at the helm. And then Yeoman Rand walks in. Take the helm. And Riley is still singing Kathleen and he barks at Uhura. And then he just takes a moment and he says, sorry. Sorry. And it's such a nice moment. It's a great moment because you see their relationship in this one moment. And you see Uhura lose her temper with her commanding officer and halfway through realize that she just yelled at the captain. And you see that he's the one who apologizes because it was him yelling at her in a situation where he knows she can't do any, if she could, she's the best communication person there is. If he, if she, if it was fixable, she'd fix it. And so he apologizes to her and also putting Rand at the, I mean, Yeoman Rand, her job on the show has very much been to be objectified. It has happened in man trap. It's happened obviously in enemy within it happens in this episode, like the idea, she is the beautiful yeoman and yet she can fly the enterprise too. So Spock goes into sickbay, and this is a crucial scene. This is one of the defining moments in Star Trek because of the the way it establishes this relationship between Spock and Chapel that would last through the entire series. Where is Dr. McCoy? He's gone to the lab. And he's about to leave sickbay, and Chapel grabs his hand. Men from Vulcan treat their women strangely. I think this scene's amazing. I think this scene is amazing for so... First of all, I think uh, Majel Barrett's performance is great. And the thing that I was thinking about is like, what is this infection, this disease? What is it doing? And I think what you could say is it's taking what's foremost in the person's mind and it's making that everything. And that what has been foremost in Christine Chappell's mind it, for a long time, is her that she is in love with this person. She's never expressed it. And I love the way she says it. As, as we see it hitting Spock, she says, I'm in love with you, Mr. Spock. You. The human, Mr. Spock. The Vulcan, Mr. Spock. Yeah, that's a great line. And it's what's so interesting about it, and this is why it's such a loving moment, is that she understands things about Mr. Spock that I don't think anybody else does. Because she says, I see things, how honest you are. You hide it, but you do have feeling. And then she says this line, which I think is so interesting. She says, How we must hurt you, torture you. I think she sees something about him that he doesn't show to anyone. I don't even think, I don't even know that. Jim Kirk sees this about Spock because I think Jim sees the, his friend and the person he trusts more than anybody else. But I don't see, think he sees Spock as someone who is tortured and that hits Spock so hard. I'm in control of my emotions. The others believe that I don't. And the I'm sorry's are fascinating. I think Nimoy's performance is great. It's so good. And I think because the I'm sorry's, I think one is the first I'm sorry is sort of, kind of, I'm sorry you feel this way, or I'm sorry, this is, you're obviously upset. The second I'm sorry, where he says, I am sorry. I think he's saying, I'm sorry, I can't return your love. Sorry. Captain is en route engineering, Mr. Spock. Can you take the bridge? Acknowledge. I am. 
I'm sorry. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. It is a profound moment. It is such a vulnerable, such a beautiful moment, uh, such a dramatic moment. Nimoy's performance in this episode, uh, and even, like I said, uh, Major, Major Barra's performance is is really, really terrific. So when Spock excuses himself, you know, he is now fully infected because she's just had her hands on his for that yeah. entire time. Yeah, but, but by the way, the, this drug apparently, whatever it is, it comes on real fast for Spock and, and Kirk. For everybody else, it's like hours. For Spock and Kirk, it's instant. Well, it's like, I guess, any, any disease. Like, look at just how some people got infected by COVID quite sure. fast, and some people didn't even know that they had it. So it just, you know, I just like any disease, it's going to hit some people faster than others. The, the uh, other one, one other small thing. Remember yeah. how we, we already have brought up um, Spock. The, my favorite moment of, of maybe of all of Spock is him standing up when he's dying in Wrath of Khan and straightening his shirt before mm-hmm. he steps forward. Nimoy does that exact gesture when he comes out of sickbay. He straightens his shirt. He stands up in a more military posture and tries to walk away. It's it's it, it, like I almost want to put them side by side and look at them. They're so similar. But at the same time, he's trying to walk away. He is overcome with emotion yes. and is fighting to hold back tears. Now, this is where we go back to engineering. And it's a, a funny bit where they try to retake engineering. Uh, Scott is cut through the bulkhead and he's with some security people. Kirk is there and... They open the bulkhead and they run in. They realize it's just Riley by himself and he's not armed. And Riley's singing Kathleen. He turns around, he sees everybody in there and goes, No dance tonight. Get him out of here. But now we come to a moment, not just in this episode, Steve, but in Star Trek, which is a defining moment. Spock finds solitude in the briefing room. And he is completely overwhelmed with emotions that he can no longer hide. This was not scripted. First of all, it wasn't scripted at all, but it wasn't even in earlier versions of the episode. The earlier version was that the crewman who was laughing with the paint, the guy who wrote Love Mankind. So, the scene as it was originally written or a variation of the scene was that this guy goes up to Spock and paints a mustache on his face as a way to humiliate him. And Nimoy in his infinite wisdom said, you know what? I think we can do something more, a whole lot more with this scene and a whole lot more with the character as we are developing him. So Nimoy went to John Black, the writer of the episode and also the story consultant and associate producer and said his idea to do this, this, this new scene. And John Black kind of waved him off. Like he kind of dismissed Nimoy. So Nimoy went to Roddenberry and pitched his new idea to Roddenberry. Roddenberry loved it. And the next thing Nimoy knew, John Black came down to the set and said to Nimoy sort of begrudgingly, Okay, what did you have in mind? And what Nimoy had in mind was a scene that was played to perfection, a scene that Nimoy did at the end of a shooting day when they were already 
crossing over into overtime. Wow. And they could only they could only do it in one take. And Nimoy did it in one take. And the other beautiful part about this scene in the briefing room is that there is no music score. Alexander Courage, director Mark Daniels, had the wherewithal to know to just let the scene speak for itself, let Nimoy's performance, that heartbreaking, gut-wrenching performance where he just breaks down in tears. And that scene, Steve, Nimoy gives that scene so much credit for helping helping him finally get what Spock was all about, that he wasn't an alien, a character with no emotions. He was a character suppressing his emotions. If you notice in production order from this point forward, Spock's portrayal is completely different than in Mud's Women and Enemy Within and Corbomite Maneuver. It's much more controlled. It's much more refined. It was like it took this scene for Nimoy to finally get, oh, I absolutely know what Spock is all about. I absolutely know how to play him. We have talked in previous episodes how Nimoy, you could see he was finding this his way. Well, with this scene in the briefing room, in the naked time, Nimoy found his way. And he also found a whole lot of fans because after this episode aired, Leonard Nimoy said, and I quote, within two weeks of that show, my mail jumped from a few hundred letters to 10,000 letters a week. In a way, Spock was more human than anyone else on the Enterprise. I think the scene is amazing. I think his performance is amazing. I think the writing is amazing. I love, because you could see him trying to dominate this just wave of emotions that's overcoming him. And you see him take a moment. It's like, I'm an officer. And and then it hits him again and he starts to break. And I love this bit of writing, I think is so cool, which is he's trying to get it up under control. And he says, my duty is to, to. Two, four, six. So the word two becomes the number two, becomes counting by twos, because he's literally going back to the basics of logic, to mathematics, the least emotional thing in the world. It's just numbers. If I can just focus on numbers. And then the instead of two, four, six, eight, the six becomes six times six is 36. Like you can picture young, you know, two-year-old Spock or whatever doing his multiplication tables, that that's where he's gone back to. And yet that, even that can't bring him back. And he just puts his head in his hand and weeps. Six times six. <laughs> it is such an incredible performance. And, and, and look at this scene, how serious, how heartbreaking how gut-wrenching it is, how powerful it is compared to just sort of the, the playfulness in the tone of the episode that, that just preceded it by a few minutes and that it could shift its tone in such a way and still be, and, and first of all, still fit in right with the rest of the episode. I mean, that is like, like when you, it, it, it takes a special skill for a director of any kind to, to, bring together so many different tones and make it work. Look at a film like 
uh, an American werewolf in London. That has a lot of different tones to it. Look at a film like Argo. Uh, that has a lot of different tones to it. But it works, and it works in an episode like The Naked Time, and that is uh, hats off to director Mark Daniels, to obviously John Black, Gene Roddenberry, and certainly all of these amazing, amazing actors. Well, and the, th- the thing that they do so well, too, so, so – uh, people use the word story and plot. They tend to use them in- interchangeably. Um, I have a very specific definition. It's kind of based on Stephen King's on writing. But the basic idea is that plot is all the external conflicts and story is the internal and interpersonal conflicts mm-hmm. and the evolution of character over time. And in really, really good writing, the plot and the story worked together perfectly. So we've gone from this truly emotional story. That's the story that Spock's internal conflicts. And now we go, the next moment is the plot. He's turned the engines off, completely cold. It'll take 30 minutes to regenerate them. Ship's outer skin is beginning to heat, Captain. Orbit plot shows we have about eight minutes left. Scotty. Scotty in a classic Scotty line says, I can't change the laws of physics. Got to have 30 minutes. And that is such a Scotty moment, by the way. And that is yeah. a moment that sort of like defined Scotty. I mean, look at look at everything this episode does. It exposes the inner feelings, the inner conflicts, the personalities. Of, of these main characters, we come to know them so much better, warts and all, flaws and all, insecurities and all. And then with, with Spock and with Scotty, we have moments that from this point forward really come to define their characters. And well, it's such a great moment. I can't change the laws of physics. I've got to have 30 minutes. And remember where we started from, Scotty. My engines, if you don't mess anything else up, my engines will get you out of here. And now he's failed. His engines can't get them out of it. The thing, the whole way he defined himself, his identity, my engines are going to, they, they, they can't save the ship. So we are now in act four. We're in the final act of the naked time. And the, the tone shifts again into much, much more serious territory. It's not fun anymore. And Kirk and Scotty are in engineering trying to figure out a way to restart the engines. You can't mix matter and antimatter cold. Now, I don't know what that means. It doesn't really matter. But the important thing is there's some theory. There's some idea that you could do it if you did a controlled implosion. I don't know what that means either. But there is only one person with the scientific knowledge that could make this happen. And that, of course, is Spock. And again, this is perfect story structure because where we left Spock completely, he's completely in case the guy can't even do multiplication tables. And we need him to come up with a theory in eight in a couple of minutes that nobody has ever done before. That is a great, great setup for a problem. We cut to sick bay. And Sulu is screaming his head off. And then he comes to his senses. I was on the bridge. He has been injected with a cure, and it obviously worked. But rather than just have the cure cure him, he's screaming. Like, why do you think he did that? I always wondered, like, what was the sort of background to that moment? Is it because this disease was alive? 
and the disease was sort of screaming in, in its final death row because it was, it was being killed. Can I tell you my actual answer to why yes. I think he's screaming? Because it made for a more dramatic cut from the previous scene because nobody else screams. There's no one else has that reaction right, to the right. injection. It's really dramatic. And I, it, it, well, it, it is really traumatic. But if you go back to the top of our conversation here, you know, when we're trying to, I guess, you know, dive deeper and to really analyze like the, the, the disease, the way it like went across and went up into Tormoan's hand, mm. that there was an intelligence there. Sure. And maybe, maybe because it was dying within Sulu, that the scream was uh, almost like a, a last action of, of defiance from the disease before it completely went away, that maybe there was something, there was something alive about it. Okay. So here's the thing I've been thinking about, about our show is that you and I are analyzing the heck out of, out of Star Trek. Yes, we are. (laughs) And and there are things I'm going to say later in this episode that there's absolutely no way that Roddenberry and this crew were thinking about this at all. And yet it works so perfectly. And so it's like, I think that is a perfectly reasonable argument. I think that's a great explanation. I don't think it's what they were. I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think they went, it's, it'll be cool to have Sulu scream. You know, like, I, I, I don't think they thought it through as much as you just did. But I think your explanation is great. I mean, look, it's when you have moments like this that are open to interpretation and you if you read into something and get something out of it that maybe the writers and the producers didn't intend, then more power to you. I mean, I never Steve, I never in all my life thought about this disease as being something that was actually alive. But if you look at the way it made Mm -hmm. its way to Tormolan's hand again, it didn't just like drip on him, which would have been enough. Like it, it looked for him. It sensed him and it went towards him. It latched itself onto him. And as it's spreading this disease, which if you look at a movie like the thing, okay. In the thing, I'm talking John Carpenter's the thing from 1982, the alien was a disease. It was spread like a disease. The alien was a pandemic and maybe just maybe I'm, I definitely don't think this is what the writers had in mind, what John Black had in mind. But as it's as it plays out, the disease in the naked time could almost be seen like the alien in the thing in the sense that it is truly alive. And Sulu's scream, I mean, it didn't happen to any of the other characters. Right. But but certainly Sulu was really taken by the disease. So it affected him in a very big way. Maybe that is why he had that reaction when this disease, when this alien was taken out of his body, but it does make for a very, very dramatic moment. And it's a shocking moment. Uh, Here's a thought. Here's something I have absolutely no evidence of, but I'm 100% certain is the truth. John Carpenter has watched this episode of Star Trek. Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, after, after this Conversation here, yeah, I, I... I'm sure that he did. That's how we missed it. It passed from man to man through perspiration. Once in the bloodstream, it acts like alcohol. It depresses the centers of judgment, self-control. At a much more broad scale, everyone gets drunk. I and mean, what happens when you drink too much? You say stuff you don't want to say. You act like you don't want to act. And then you wake up the next morning with a hell of a hangover and you regret all of it, which is exactly and, what happens in this episode. 
And the fact is, there have been times where I've had a few drinks and ended up with a sword in my hands. That is 100% true. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I'm more like Spock in the sense that I've had too much to drink and I start crying un- uncontrollably. No, but, uh, having like, martial arts buddies, there's times where you have drunken sparring and you make all sorts of terrible choices. We are back in the briefing room and Kirk has been looking for Spock. Spock is still in tears in the briefing room. Kirk walks in, sees Spock as a mess. My mother. I could never tell her I loved her. We've got four minutes, maybe five. An Earth woman living on a planet where love, emotion, bad taste. We've got to risk a full power start. The engines were shut off, no time to regenerate. Do you hear me? We've got to risk a full power start. This scene between Kirk and Spock, the acting between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner is absolutely fantastic. Kirk is trying to snap him out of it, and he smacks Spock. Jim, when I feel friendship for you, I'm ashamed. I got to tell you, I had a reaction in this scene that I've never had before. And I've watched this dozens of times. and, And this is the thing. I would put on Star Trek for fun. Because it's my old friend. Mm -hmm. And so it's late at night. Most of my family's gone to sleep. I'll watch The Naked Time. Isn't this fun? And, you know, I probably had my iPad in my hand. And I was playing a video game, too. And I'm paying attention to it. But I know the whole thing by heart. When I watched this this time, I was 100% focused on it. And I'm not, I'm so shocked that this is what happened. But when he said, Jim, when I feel friendship for you, I'm ashamed. I burst into tears. Yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. It hit me so hard. The pain of that moment and the expression of love. And again, this is the 60s and one man, he's essentially saying, I love you mm-hmm. to this guy. And the pain and the idea that the most profound feelings in your life, your love for your mother and your love for your best friend makes you feel ashamed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is, I, I mean, that's just such a huge thing. Understand, Jim. Spent a whole lifetime learning to hide my feelings. And I love too that he says this after getting slapped. You know what I mean? He doesn't care about the slap. It's this moment of clarity. And and I also love too that when he does actually make Spock mad and Spock catches his man, you don't want to get backhanded by a Vulcan. Like it's because it also establishes just how damn strong he is. <laughs> And the thing too, Kirk, who's been knocked across the room, he's not mad about that. He's still on. We've got to risk implosion. It's our only chance. It's never been done. Don't tell me that again, science officer. It's a theory. It's possible. It's an incredible scene. And he's just trying to get through to his science officer. And then Uhura is paging him saying, did you find Mr. Spock? And Yes, I found Mr. Spock. I'm talking to Mr. Spock. Do you understand? And then he's got it. The disease. And he knows it. And he can't fight it. It is hitting him hard. And all this point for in terms of whether we've been watching or the way the show has been produced, we have seen Kirk as this calm, cool, collected, too cool for school captain, a captain that we look up to and admire that we will follow into a burning volcano. And now for the first time, we are seeing how 
lonely being in command is, the loneliness of command, how vulnerable he is, how almost insecure he is, how afraid he is of losing the enterprise. Love. You're better off without it than I'm better off without mine. This vessel. I give. She takes. She won't permit my life. I've got to live hers. His love is for the Enterprise, and he, he won't lose her. And Shatner's delivery here is, is as heartbreaking here for, for Kirk as Nimoy's prior scene in the briefing room alone was with Nimoy. So, so much here to, to talk about. The, the first thing is, is it's, I, I do love that the moment that Kirk begins to lose control is the moment that Spock begins to gain control. Jim, there is an intermixed formula. Because nobody else on this show is able to conquer this infection. And Spock, who has spent literally his entire lifetime building the strength to, to conquer his own emotions, to control his own emotions, is able to do it. And what, what, what motivates him to do it is seeing his friend in trouble. I think that's amazing. With Kirk, what's so profound to me, I think he has this epiphany in this moment because it's not just that he's acknowledging his love for the Enterprise, but he's also acknowledging his attraction for Yeoman Rand. Have you noticed her, Mr. Spock? You're allowed to notice her. The captain's not permitted. And that's why it makes such a difference to watch them in production order because when people originally saw The Naked Time, they, they hadn't seen all the other episodes that build up the attraction between Kirk and Rand. In particular, they hadn't seen The Enemy Within. Now I know why. It's called She. And it's not just Yeoman Rand. It's not just Janice. It's he has given up on love. He has made the decision that this is what he's meant to do. And if he has to sacrifice all these other things then he'll do it. Flesh woman, to touch, to hold, a beach to walk on. A few days, no braid on my shoulder. I'm going to say a couple of things that there is no possibility that they were thinking about at all. But if we think about Kirk as we know him in his entire history, he gave up his relationship with Carol Marcus. Mm -hmm. And that... You know, is that now that hadn't happened yet. I mean, it had in Kirk's timeline, but it hadn't happened in this timeline. Is that he is a character who actually did choose to not have love in order to have the Enterprise. Scotty comes in and Kirk looks at Scotty and he says, Scotty, and he goes, Help. It's such a tender cry. It's not a, a loud cry. It's, it's, help me. I mean, it's a beautiful moment, but then Spock, he sees what is happening to Kirk and he cares about Kirk so much that he actually doesn't even need the, the antidote. That alone, that, that moment cures Spock. Stand by to intermix. I call the formula in from the bridge. And I actually cried twice watching this scene, I swear to God, is that when he says, just at the very end, as he's decided that he's got to hang on and, and they've, he's, he's going to go try to save the ship, he looks up at the bulkhead and says, Never lose you. Never. 
it just yep. hit me so hard. And here's what, again, no one was thinking about this. This is entirely in the future, but this is the guy who will use a whole bunch of kind of underhanded tactics to take back the enterprise in Star Trek, the motion picture, yep. take back the enterprise again. And because that is where he's supposed to be in wrath of Khan and destroy the enterprise in Star Trek three. Yes. Like, there's so much here in this moment. And I have one more thing to say. And again, I don't think they weren't thinking this, but why is Spock and Kirk the only two people who can conquer this disease and have enough control to fight back? Well, I will say, I think the most traumatic moment in James T. Kirk's life up to this point was having uh, being split in two and seeing the dark evil side of him and seeing the worst parts of himself and being told by Spock, you can win by using your logic because you think. And he had the experience of getting on the transporter pad and his mind holding himself together to save his own life. Because he had that experience, he can conquer this at this moment. Absolutely. That's a great, great perspective, a great analysis. And that moment where he where he'd said he looks up at the at the round, like looking at a ship saying, never lose you. And all, all the lengths, like you said, that was a great way to put all the lengths that he went through to save his ship, to get the ship back, and to send 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 the enterprise out on a in a blaze of glory, literally yeah. in Star Trek three. So he tells Scotty and Spock to clear the corridors and he gains his composure and he's walking down the corridor towards the turbo lift. He gets in the turbo lift, says bridge, the door closes and painted on the door, sinner repent. And when we are on the bridge, if you look at the tone of this episode while they're on the bridge and then look at like act two, when it's more playful, it is so serious. It is so dramatic. The Enterprise is just moments away from burning up in the atmosphere of the, the remains of Planet Psi 2000. And there's this dramatic moment, unnecessary as it turns out, where McCoy rips his shirt to give him the hypo of the cure. But the cinematography, the lighting on the bridge during the scene is so dramatic. All the dark shadows... And all the color gels, again, Jerry Finnerman. Every episode of this series that we're doing, Steve, I'm going to give a big shout out to Jerry Finnerman for his absolutely brilliant cinematography. And this I think scene- this, this one in particular, this scene, you're right. It looks, the shadows, the way light's playing on Kirk, it looks it looks great. And also the way the lights are, are playing on, you know, because the insignias on the uniforms are of a foil, so they shine. And the, 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 the way that the insignias even shine during dramatic moments like this. So uh, Kirk is getting, getting his act together and getting control of not just of himself, but getting control back of the ship. And, and his performance is great. He's it's great in this. Terrific. Moment. He is terrific in this episode. Hyperbolic course. Direction, sir. Direction. Direction. It doesn't matter. The way we came. But he's still feeling the, 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 the pangs of loneliness. And he looks at, at Rand and he's about almost like motions to touch her face and he stops yeah. himself. 
And he says, No beach to walk on. It's such a heartbreaking moment. He just looks at her and just looks down. By the way, one thing when we talked several times about the enhanced version versus the original effects, this is an episode where I think the enhanced version is great. Yeah, I agree. The, 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 the spinning planet and what happens in this moment and the way they do the effect, even though it's really honors the original, it, it, it looks really, really good. And what happens then? Engage. The lights all dim on the bridge and the music hits and the lights come back and we realize we've made it. And Sulu says the velocity gauge is off the scale. We're now traveling faster than is possible for normal space. And then Kirk, for some reason, says, check the time. And we look down at the chronometer and it is running backwards. This is the very first time travel episode of Star Trek. They are going backwards in time. And as it turned out, this episode was supposed to be the first of two parts. Because this episode was supposed to end on a cliffhanger where the Enterprise travels back in time to the late 1960s. And part two was supposed to pick up with the episode called Tomorrow is Yesterday. I never knew that. That's yes. fascinating. Yeah, they were supposed to go back to the 60s, and that's where they pick up Captain Christopher and mess up time. But they left that for later. And and as a result, I think that the uh, traveling backwards in time, it's almost feels like a, it almost feels like a tacked on yeah, kind of that's thing. how I've always felt about it. Like, why, why do we do By the way, one thing that's weird is that the, there's a little red light above the chronometer as it's spinning backwards. And then when it starts spinning forward, the light turns from red to green. And it's like, if you've never gone back in time, why would you have a red light for when your clock is going backwards? It doesn't make any sense. But maybe, um, it's, maybe it's red because the clock is running backwards. So sh- Sure, but if you didn't know time travel was possible... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nitpicky little thing. It is a nitpicky little thing. Um, but, um, but you know, they, this is something, this is a device in terms of a light speed breakaway that they would use deliberately to go back in time in an episode like uh, a Simon Earth. And then later on in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. So it may have felt tacked on for the naked time. But it is something that uh, worked out quite nicely uh, as a device for for future adventures of the Starship Enterprise. And the one we get our little tag of we've gone back three days in time. We have three days to live over again. Not those last three days. Which seems weird to me because it's like, well, you'll behave differently this time. (laughs) You won't do the same stuff. And we end up with resume course and steady as she goes. And we have reached the end of the incredible Star Trek episode, The Naked Time. In his uh, biography, Star Trek Memories from 1993, William Shatner referred to The Naked Time as, quote unquote, one terrific episode. And Gene Roddenberry said that this was an important show and another way of establishing who our people are. The Naked Time I, I think is an episode that absolutely holds up. It's not dated in any way. I mean, you have the kind of silliness of the uh, shower curtains for the environmental suits at the beginning. But, you know, beyond that, it is a perfect episode. It is a flawless episode. It is a, an episode that has done so much to, to develop and better understand our main characters. 
It is an episode that plays to the strengths of the actors portraying these characters. It is an episode that is a landmark for the development, especially of Mr. Spock. And it is an essential, an absolutely essential episode if you are going to binge on essential episodes of Star Trek. So in last week's episode of The Man Trap, I, I talked about this epiphany I had about the first several episodes and about how all of them deal with these ideas of desire and hidden desires and dark sides of ourselves and our ability of logic and our minds to overcome them. And it's so funny because there, there are all sorts of themes of Star Trek that I've always known about, you know, whether it was not having stagnant cultures or including diverse opinions or the thing that you think is your enemy maybe isn't your enemy when you come to understand. Those are all themes of Star Trek that pop up in ep- all sorts of episodes. I never thought of this particular thing as a theme of Star Trek that pops up again and again, but it obviously does. And obviously what we see in this episode, the solution is for our two leads, Spock and Kirk, to use their strength of will and their logic to overcome the more emotional, chaotic sides of their personality. And here's the the, the last piece of this epiphany is I went, oh, logic and emotion is central to Star Trek. And that is why Mr. Spock is the greatest character in the history of Star Trek, because that is his character. His character is the combination, the battle, the balance between logic and emotion, between science and humanity. And that is so central to Star Trek. And that is what has clicked in for me just on these first seven episodes. My ideas about Star Trek, this thing I've loved my entire life, is changing. You know, Steve, while I have to say that I became a Star Trek fan because of Captain Kirk. Me too. Because of the way that that Kirk has inspired me over my entire life, over my entire life. But when it comes down to it, I agree with you that the most important character in all of Star Trek, in all of its forms, on all of these TV series and all of these movies, Spock represents the physical embodiment of Star Trek for everything that you just said and so much more. Because I think even after 55 years and after so many different shows now where you've had so many iconic characters and so many great actors playing them, that when, you, when, you, when it comes down to it, when you boil Star, Star Trek down to its most physical, personal form, it is that of Mr. Spock. I agree with you. Because just like Nimoy said when he was describing the impact of the naked time of that briefing room scene on the appeal of Spock, of the appeal of Star Trek, and the the increase in fans that he got by saying that Star Trek, that, that, that Spock was the most human character on the Enterprise. And I completely agree with that epiphany, absolutely 100%. Oh, Scott, <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how much fun I've had talking about The Naked Time. And if you've had fun out there, then subscribe to the show on iTunes or YouTube, Spotify, or Stitcher. As always, I'm begging you for those reviews on iTunes. They are what helps people to find the show. And if you want to find us, 
do a search on Facebook for Enterprise Incidents. You can follow us on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents, and you can follow us at Twitter at Enter Incidents. And if people wanted to follow the great Scott Mance, how would they do that? You can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And now that you have my Twitter handle, I strongly encourage you to please hit me up on Twitter and let me know and let us know what you think of Enterprise Incidents. Not just this episode on The Naked Time, but on Enterprise Incidents as a whole. What do you think of the series so far? How much are you loving it? How much are you enjoying it? And also, make sure you let us know who you are sharing this show with. Because we want... We want to appeal to people who are listening to, to or people who are watching Star Trek for the very first time, the original series, but also people who have seen these episodes like me and Steve over and over and over again, like hundreds of times. And we still love it. And we still get so much more out of it. And that is why, uh, you know, you got to hit Steve Morris up too. Steve, what's your handle? Well, if they want to hit me up, they would do it on Twitter at SR Morris and an Instagram at SR Morris one. And, you know, I always plug my other podcast, the cinephiles where each week we explore a, a new film. Well, you know what? I'm going to plug my own films because if you go on Amazon Prime right now for free, you can watch the Great White Shark documentary I directed called Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear. And on iTunes right now, you can rent the independent feature that I wrote and directed called The Assistance, which stars Joe Montaigne, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach. So check that out. But the next thing I'm going to personally be watching is the next episode of Star Trek. What episode is that? Oh, that would be Charlie X. A great episode, the first of many seminal episodes written by the legendary Dorothy D.C. Fontana. And an amazing, amazing performance by Robert Walker Jr. A great episode. One of, uh, an episode that has one of the freakiest and creepiest moments, I think, of the entire Star Trek original series. Please join us for our deep dive into Charlie X. And until next time, keep going boldly. <laughs>